Welcome back to the Creative Nonsense Podcast. This is episode four. Today I'll be talking with Xander Trejo. So let's get into the episode. You're a student. You write scripts in your free time. I'm trying to do that stuff more often this summer because I guess I'll have the time. So I'm trying to start a YouTube channel with a friend. He's going to be writing a script and I'm going to be trying to see if we can get this broadcast studio, that's a local broadcast studio, mm-hmm. involved. Cool. So what are you guys trying to do with the channel? Mostly just uh, short films, I think, and sketches if we can. This more written format type things is what I want to do with it. But we just got back on the horse. I guess we'll end up seeing where it goes. You said that you did something yesterday? This Thursday and Friday, I'm going to be showing my friends some movies. I'm doing a screening of uh, movies that basically inspired me to do filmmaking and wanted me to maybe want to do it more. And so yesterday we showed Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a goofy movie, and Back to the Future. I ended up flipping a coin and uh, Heads was the movies that I think most people would see. Mm -hmm. And Tails was the ones that are more study material, which I'll get to in a bit. But most of them did see um, those three movies, except one of my friends hadn't seen Back to the Future. So he was like flipping out about all the callbacks and all the like references to itself in a sense. Mm-hmm. Cause there was stuff like how in the beginning, uh, Biff is like nodding on his head, like wake up, fly, think, think and stuff like that. And then later on when he's getting bullied in the past, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we were all just kind of sitting here, sitting, sitting there looking at his reaction of the film, which is why I wanted to do it. Cause I want to see their reactions to these films. But since they've seen those films, it wasn't that much of a reaction. Mm-hmm. But today I'm going to show Taxi Driver by Martin Scorsese. Back in 1976 it was made, and then I'm going to show Chasing Amy from Kevin Smith, I think in 1995, 1996, something like that. And then I'm going to show Donnie Darko from 2001. Have you seen those movies? No, I haven't seen any of those, but those are all like supposed to be like either like cult classics or like actual like mm-hmm. classics. Yeah, yeah. Well, Taxi Driver, I've written three essays on in film and for, for three different film classes so like it's this uh, thing i keep going back to to like study and get i guess because it's a really in-depth character study about mm-hmm. a very specific type of human being and then chasing amy is just like i'm a fan of the director kevin smith and it's like the best of his work i guess or people cloud it as to be his best of his work if not one of the best i think it is his best and it's just like a really different depiction of like a uh, romantic comedy because I just took a film genres class and we were talking about, well, we weren't talking about romantic comedy, but we were talking about the musical, mm-hmm. which sometimes delves into that. And we watched La La Land. Have you seen La La Land? Yes. What did you think of it? Uh, I like it because um, I like how it has like so much of like the nostalgia of like other things like Singing in the Rain. It looks very Technicolor and like how like the old coloring of like movies used to be and just like the costume and design and it has all of the tropes of like a normal musical mm-hmm. it, it seems like a normal people in like a stage production if that was a thing yeah well we were talking about how there's backstage musical movies or whatever mm-hmm. where it talks about well it, sh- well it shows the behind the scenes of a movie production with the musical aspect and then there's like four cable ones which were like more fantasy oriented and other like genres of it i guess of the genre itself. Oh, before I say my opinion about La La Land, I wanted to ask how, how, because I know you're into musicals, mm-hmm. right? But are you into movie musicals? I'm into some of them. So, like, I liked Into the Woods a lot. I think that it was, like, 
pretty true to like how the stage production is. Um, I like Les Mis. Things like Chicago I'm not really into. Love Mamma Mia. Rent is pretty good. So it's like, it, it just depends. Some of them that are too showy, like I usually don't like those kinds of musicals anyway. So like Chicago is very like a flashy, dancey type thing. And so some <clears throat> of those musicals I'm usually not into. <laughs> I don't know, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't get into La La Land for some reason. Like it didn't grab me. Especially since that big opening, big number mm-hmm. is just like, I feel at least like very detached from the source material of the movie. We're talking about, like, I know it's in themes of, like, we're talking about L.A. and going there and, like, trying to be who you want to be and all that. But, like, it just feels like, haha, look, we're doing this big musical production. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've heard that from a lot of people, too, and a lot of people because they're, like, it seems like it's supposed to be about, like, those beginning people, and then it just kind of, like, throws you into them. But I think that's more of, like, these are, like, normal people and this is kind of like how normal people like get their start even though like it doesn't exactly play out like that in the movie it's more like accelerated version of like oh like she has to like set up her play and then the play gets like no one was really there but out of like the people that were there someone wanted to like actually hire her for another part because that first song just kind of like sets up like all these little micro stories and then it's like we're gonna go into this one story and then it kind of like follows Mia's path. But then again, I'm also writer person, and I was like, I feel this. Yeah, that's what it was. That's what bugged me because I have a friend. Me and him talk about movies a lot, mm-hmm. and he he watched. He took the film class that I took, I think, or one of them, or whatever, that showed La La Land. So he, last year, mm-hmm. so he already seen La La Land. Like we already talked about it before. We already talked about the themes and stuff without me viewing it. So I went into it thinking, like, I'll probably be attached to... Because he was saying he was... He felt how Sebastian is, how he wants to... How Sebastian's story is kind of... He wants to save up jazz, and he can't do that while he's attached to, like, I guess a girlfriend or a relationship that's mm-hmm. not, like, good for him as it is for her. I don't know. I didn't feel attached to him. I didn't feel attached to Mia. I didn't. I felt like it was very out of nowhere to have them meet and then love each other, and then we're supposed to believe that they're breaking up. Well, I, d- I did believe that they were breaking up, but, like, I didn't believe, like, their relationship, I guess. Because the breakup scene, I felt, was really real. I felt like it was really, like, down to earth or whatever, where it's like, I'm going to say what what's wrong with you in this relationship, you're going to say what's wrong with me, and then we're just going to, like, separate a bit. And then he goes and meets with her and gets to her to the audition and everything. But then, do you remember what the ending was or no? Well, it's because they both end up at that, like, it's his actual club, right? Yeah, and yeah, she's like an it. actress, and she's with like her husband. They like see each other for like that moment. Yeah. Do you remember how? Oh, okay, okay. So do you remember how they sit down, right? And she looks at him, and he like sees her after he's talking to the crowd, and then he plays the um, City of Stars song or whatever it is exactly. And then it goes into that montage of what she thinks like the relationship would have been, mm-hmm. I guess, or whatever. Like, how did you interpret that montage, I guess? Uh, I see the montage in, like, the ideal way. Like, if we had not, like, messed up in this way. So, like, if if people were better people than people are, like, this is what would have happened. Like, oh, they would have done these things. All these people would have shown up. He would have shown up to, like, her first show. He would have succeeded in his thing. They would have had kids together. So it's, like, in, like, the ideal world, this is how it all would have played out. 
because we were talking about it in class, we just finished it, and then um, I proposed the idea that it's not the ideal version of everybody winning, it's the ideal version of Mia winning, because in that argument, in that breakup, he says, I really I really feel like you want me to sit on my ass and not do anything, <clears throat> and like, support you, and that's it. And then what does he do in the montage? I like, don't does remember. he? Does he act- he doesn't do anything, really. He supports her, and that's it. And, and we don't know if Sebastian is, like, a success in that montage. We just know that he's with her in that weird moment where, like, the timelines meet up, I guess. I don't know. They're at this club, and they're watching this stranger. Like, the, in the there's a shot where, like, it revolves around the room, and it comes back. And in that shot, when it's revolving around the room, we see somebody else on the camera, some random extra, not a person we've seen before, anybody, so... So I was saying in class, like, I feel like it was in that moment. This is somebody else's club. This is somebody else's, somebody else who's playing on that piano. Like, in Mia's head, she wanted somebody to support her. And she got that with the husband, maybe. I don't know. I feel like I need to rewatch it now. Just because I'm like, I feel like I didn't pay attention to the montage now. I was just listening to the pretty music and looking at how pretty it was. I feel like a lot of people did that. Because I feel like it was supposed to be La La Land. It was supposed to be a fantasy. It was supposed to be a whimsical thing, right? Mm-hmm. The movie itself, the narrative itself. But then I just sat, I just sat there and was like, no, there's got to be more. There's got to be, you know, I started analyzing it and stuff, which isn't bad. And it's not like I ruined it or anything. But like, it's just like, I felt like I took a step deeper into it. I'm it's just like thinking sense. about like how everyone who I know who like lives in LA, like how LA is to everybody. And I'm like, I feel like that was pretty LA <laughs> like even how they show even how she works on the at that back lot and uh, one of other studios I don't know if it's told to be one of other studios in the movie but it's on one of other studios just like that is like backstage musical okay so in class we were talking about La La Land and we were talking and we were talking about how it relates to another movie we watched which is from 1961 or something like that I think and it's called Umbrellas of True Bog so Umbrellas of True Bog is a French New Wave movie. Do you know what French New Wave is? Yes. <laughs> okay, just making sure, because some people are like, what are you talking about when I bring this up? Because <laughs> <laughs> French and New if, Wave is, like, <laughs> niche. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't know for the people watching, <laughs> um, it's basically an experimental er- era in uh, French cinema. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the most experimental musicals of that era. And I forgot who... I forgot who wrote it, but each each dialogue piece is sung, and it's like this love story, and it's actually a big influence on a lot of uh, romantic comedies and romantic movies and musicals. And it was one of the biggest influences on La La Land. Uh, Damien Chazelle, I think the director is, mm-hmm. I believe. I could be wrong about that. Um, but he's, 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 he's cited saying that. So we just, so coming off the boon of that, like that French New Wave experimental, experimental thing, to this like weird contemporary 2016 version of that that like is diving into like oh we're gonna set the camera up very far back and we're gonna see them like singing in the rain it was like really weird to me because it was like the fluidity because we did see singing in the rain actually too so like it was like the fluidity of like we're being in this moment this is what we're doing rather than like how La La Land is doing it like we have to do this because we have to pay homage or homage I mean or whatever you want to pronounce it as and like, we have to do this because it's like a tick. Uh, I felt like you have, tick, you have to take a box on it is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know if you got that feeling from it. Yeah, 
Um, what is it? I feel like uh, that just reminded me of how people felt about Ready Player One. I haven't read the book or watched the movie, but I know that a lot of people felt like it was very much like they all felt like it was like very nostalgia heavy because it was just playing mm. on that. And I think La La Land does it a lot too. It's like, oh, this is how classic movies are. They look like this and they have all these things. And Ready Player One is like, look, all these movies we can include references to and like all this stuff from the past. And some people feel like on both sides that it's just too much and that it takes away from the actual like story of what's happening and so it's like i get that it just depends on like what appeals to you because i think like the way that it looks is just amazing yeah i can admit that if nothing else i think it looks very very pretty (laughs) oh no but even then like i noticed something i I didn't say it in class and i'm gonna regret it for the rest of my life but like so have you ever like got a camera and like zoomed out extremely wide with the wide lens mm-hmm. and like seeing the circles of the camera it's like a vignette it's like if like right here was a vignette but it's just a harsh vignette because that's where the end of the camera is that's where the end of the bulb is there's a couple shots in that movie that are like that that you can see the lens like if and, it, and it's and it took me out of the movie and like even then it's just like four or five shots maybe mm-hmm. but even then my brain's like no and i don't know if it's because i want something to be wrong with it and i hope it's not that or if it's something like I'm just, my brain's on overdrive, like, looking at this movie, trying to think of things to talk about in class, because there's, like, two people who talk in that class besides me. But even, like, the color grading, like how you said before, it was very beautiful. Yeah. And the montage sequence of, like, them dating was really, was fairly interesting, and even that's a callback to um, The Umbrellas of Shrewbog. There's, like, a mon- it's this montage-ish things where it's, like, basically in that, in that movie, um, the main lead is pregnant, so it jumps from month to month to month. So I guess they decided to do that, but with like seasons and months, you know, because the relationship and stuff like that. And then even like the visuals of like, of this is um, LA or California in this season, I felt was really interesting since I'm from California and stuff like that. I'm thinking about like all those things too, and I'm like, I feel like maybe it just ticks a lot of boxes for me on things that like I usually like. So it's like, I love musicals, I like really pretty, like, cinematography i like things that are about artists yeah just like all those things are usually like the movies that i tend to watch so i feel like maybe for me i'm just like blinded by that but i know what you feel like about um like noticing like the shots because i know in a lot of things like i get really taken out of it sometimes if i'm like oh that cut was like kind of weird or like the sound just is weird here or something like I get taken out of movies sometimes if I start to overanalyze them. Like, especially like, like Wes Anderson movies. I'm like oh, okay. so <laughs> into like everything about those. <laughs> do you like that feeling or do you not like that feeling of like knowing what's behind the sausage making process? I guess people usually say it. Um, I, I feel like I'm okay with it because unless something's really bad, I usually don't pay attention until like the second time I watch something. It's like, mm-hmm. I've done that a lot with uh, musicals. So, like, I've seen Book of Mormon, like, three times now. And the first time I saw it, I, um, what is it, was just, like, in it. And I was like, okay, this is how all the staging works. This is how, like, this is. And, like, I was still getting used to all of it. And the second time around, I was like, oh, this is the kind of stage that they use. This is the kind of lighting cue that happens there. This person isn't actually talking right now. This is, like, an audio cue that someone's hitting on, like, backstage and like the timing of these things has to be so precise and so it's like 
I'm okay with it the second time around and like stuff as long as like something doesn't go wrong because I'm so into theater I think I notice even on a first time if like an actor makes a mistake because it's like I usually have read like the script before I see a musical which might be weird to some people but it's like I always have like the librettos and um so it's like I've already like pre-made it in my head and so I'm like seeing like what the actual like version is versus like mine and then like comparing. Movies I feel like I probably experience more because it's a first time thing but yeah it's only if something's like really striking so if like in Star Trek I'm like how many of these uh, lens flares are there going to be? How many oh times is this gonna happen? <laughs> Um, I, I think someone made a montage mm-hmm. of just like every uh, lens flare in the Star Trek movie and it was like ridiculous. It was in the hundreds, I think. Let me say something about the lens flare before I get back to the topic. Okay. <laughs> but the, I, I hate it so much because like the idea of using it like that artificially is because it's it's um it's it's an artifact on the lens. It's like a it's an inaccuracy, it's a flaw that's like, the light is hitting it at such a way that it's reflecting it back at such a way that the other glass... You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And to say, like, oh, we're going to throw some in there for some, like, sprinkling is kind of like, come on now. <laughs> like, it seems more like, it's a style. Like, it's a... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess anything's a style. It's artistic intent and all that. But, like, I don't know. Like, that personally bugs me. But, like, if you, like, do some weird cinematography or some weird color grading, like, I understand that. Yeah, so does it bother you when people add, like, fake grain to a film? Not, not if I don't notice it. Like, if it, if the whole movie's, like, together with that grain, or, like, color grading, or, like, color, like, La La Land, like, whenever it's nighttime, it's really purple and bluish, mm-hmm. you know? And then whenever it's in daytime, it's very, like, bright blue and, like, kind of, I guess, like, orange hue, I guess? There was that, actually, there was that, it looked kind of gray in, like, some of the things. But I because I think they're because of, I was, uh, close shots, close-ups, I mean, like, tight shots that were, like, that they probably didn't want to color grade on or whatever. If they do, if they did do that, I don't know if they just shot it in a specific way to make it look like that. Like, like your last podcast, your guests, then you were talking about um, black and white, I guess, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, and even with my friend Ramon, we talk about this. The idea of, like, black and white doesn't, like, get a lot of appreciation. Because with color, like, we could record this, right? Mm-hmm. And if we want this, we and you could be purple or blue or whatever. We could make the lighting this way and that way and we could do whatever we want because we have a range of colors on both ends on both spectrums we fill that whole thing but when it's black and white you get technicolor like you barely if you want like you get blacks grays and whites maybe browns so the lighting is more precise the cinematography is more precise everything is more precise especially if you go back and like look at like 1960s 70s stuff not to say like anybody who thinks otherwise is wrong or anything but just like the idea of it i feel is very lackluster because even like kevin smith he did uh clerks right mm-hmm. and he just did it in black and white because it was cheaper and there's a lot of things that were like especially contemporary people like oh let's do black and white film because it's cheaper and then in the interview junket they're like oh we just did it because it's cheaper so then people think oh it's just cheaper it's just that's not actually artistic intent but when you use it like when you when you intend to use it in an artistic way i think it's very beautiful and like we even, I've even watched a couple of black and white films, like in film class. Like, have you seen Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? Yes, I believe so. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I think I watched it in theater at some point. Oh wow! <laughs> I wish I could be so lucky, but like that was like mind blowing to me. Like it, th- due to pop culture, like even something like Ready Player One, 
to like dive back into that for a second, like there's a section in the book that covers um, Blade Runner, I think. Mm-hmm. For the movie, they covered The Shining, and they do all the beats of The Shining, like they do the elevator, they do the Johnny's hair, they do the maze, they do everything. So if you haven't seen that movie and it's the first time you've seen any of that in context, if you haven't seen the Simpsons episode of it or whatever, then you're going to see it as jokes. You're going to see it as the character running up to the elevator. I'm going to press the elevator button. haha, And then the blood comes out. And, you know, and it's like a reference to, oh, we knew what was going to happen because intertextuality means that the audience probably seen that movie and knows of it. And it's the same way with Alfred Hitchcock's thing. Like I went, to, I went in knowing that Mary Crane was not going to live till the end. I went in knowing that no one Bates was the killer and that it wasn't his mom and that his mom wasn't there and that you know all the other things i didn't know every single detail but like it was still mind-blowing it was still like i still felt like for the lack of a better word <laughs> the balls of <laughs> hitchcock to be like i'm gonna kill the main character now we're not like you know like it's not gonna be a three-act structure where the protagonist wins or they get kidnapped they get kidnapped i mean they get put in jail or anything mm-hmm. like no Sometimes this just happens, you know, and it's like, and even in the moment I was, even right now thinking about it, like my heart's racing, but in the moment when I'm sitting in a class with people who kind of probably have paying attention, I don't know, like, I'm still like, oh my gosh, like, this is, this is a masterpiece. This is filmmaking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I-, I love it. And that whole thing is black and white. Like, especially in like things where, um, what is it? Like you've heard about them a lot and then like you finally like see the thing and when you can feel like it met all the expectations and like even if like you knew some things about it already or it still felt like new and like you didn't expect it to happen in that way like that's that's really nice when like movies are like that like classics like i've heard both sides of people on like citizen kane like it's it's the best mm-hmm. movie ever like it's a terrible movie <laughs> i actually that's funny you mentioned that because i think Last week, I think, I watched Citizen Kane. And even that, I know the plot twist of the end of the last shot's going to be, it's blank. If you don't know it, I'm not going <laughs> to. But, um, but you know what I mean? I know what Rosebud means. But even then, like, it's still, like, it's still, like, a good movie. It's still, like, the shots are crazy good and the acting is crazy good and the script is pretty tight and, like, everything is just well executed. I feel like that's, like, I feel like back then, like, in... I don't know if back then it was called a classic or if like 20 years removed, 30 years removed, 50 years, whatever. But like in order to be a classic or regarded as such, it need, you just need like to be even on an even playing field. Mm-hmm. Because like when you think of classics, you think like Psycho, you think Fudigo, you think uh, Casablanca, you think um, like and you think like even Shawshank Redemption or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I feel like all of those are like on level, good level fields of being either really good but great like it's all concise it's all like precise and it's all very tight i feel like that's all you need to do like because 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 it's not like it's an exceptional movie like like citizen k not to bring it down or anything but i would say it's a classic mm-hmm. and have you seen vertigo or no again i feel like i saw it a long time ago but i haven't seen it in a while we watched a lot of hitchcock in that theater class and a lot of movies with um what is it jimmy stewart Mm. So like we watched yeah, like Harvey, which is really good if you've never seen it. I don't think I have. No. He has like an imaginary friend who's like a bunny, but he's like he's kind of there, kind of not. Like the bunny is like kind of real, so it's like I don't know. It's hard <laughs> to explain if you haven't seen it, but it's it's a pretty good movie. 
That's that's pretty weird. I'm getting uh, I know you haven't seen it, but I'm getting Donnie Darko flashbacks. Yes, I need to actually watch it. It's in my Netflix <laughs> queue, and like I know that that bunny yeah, is like a whole too. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. That's why I'm gonna show it because um, the first movie I had in that list because I've had this list for a while. And I've been waiting to the summer to get show my friends and stuff, have screenings. Was uh, Memento? Have you seen Memento? No. Christopher Nolan. It's I think it's a dictatorial debut, and that movie messes with non-chronological order a lot because um, the main character is a character who used to be a cop, and in doing a home invasion, is he got shot in the brain and he survived. But in the moment, they thought that he was dead, so they ended up they ended up uh, raping his wife in front of him and killing her. So ever since then, he he's he's lost a piece in his brain that makes it so that his short-term memory is messed up and every day it's a reset for him so he has little mementos of sticky notes and stuff around and he has like the important stuff tattooed on him and one of the tattoos on his chest or something like that is to avenge your wife so for the past x amount of years he's been trying to piece together notes to avenge his wife and it's like you're you're making revelations as he's making revelations you're finding out notes as he is and it's all very like the mindfuck movie i guess Mm -hmm. And Donnie Darko is that too, so I was like, great substitute, because for some reason in North America, Memento isn't available on Netflix, but it says not in your region, you cannot access it. Have you seen Law Abiding Citizen? It has Gerard no, Butler. I don't think so. I think I know what you're talking about. But... Yeah, that movie, like, um, there's this guy who ends up, like, killing his wife and, like, child, and I can't remember, like, where that happens in there, but then he ends up, like, not only, because, um, like, the guy gets off uh like without like an arrest or anything and so the people who like let that go like in like the court system and like all the people in like the city he makes sure that not only the person who like killed his wife and kid die but like everyone else who is like even related to the thing dies but he does it all from like within prison and it's just like the psychological things of like what that can like do to you if like your family is like killed like how far you will go is really interesting um, and it reminded me a lot of, uh, what is it, Murder on the Orient Express, how all those people have their own reason to kill that one guy, and so the guy ends up getting stabbed by, like, multiple people, so, it, it, like, you can't even really tell which one killed him, it's, like, ridiculous. Like, I think, like, my favorite type of, I guess, I don't know if it's narrative exactly, but, like, is my favorite type of movie, I guess, or whatever, is, like, the character study, where it, like, takes somebody's perspective and just like delves into it and just like shows you who they are what they are what makes them tick and it's even something as simple as like in taxi driver you see the reasons behind like not all the reasons behind who who the main character is but you understand him i guess a little bit and you and he has these monologues because he's writing letters to his home i guess He's, he's he's living away in new york like he talks about like how he's how he sees the city and how he sees um women around him and like the people around him and how like the city is garbage and it's sewage filled and he like wants to clean it up and all these things and like you see it too because he's a taxi driver you see him in the red light district and you see him like having to um taxi around like prostitutes or whatever and he's like going through insomnia and he's a returning war vet it it takes place in 1976 so he just came back from the vietnam war and he's just trying to pick up a job as a taxi driver because he has insomnia so like the whole the whole movie's a trip down with him to like further insanity, and it just keeps going deeper and deeper until he explodes. 
I don't want to spoil the movie, but there's a good there's a good bit of like where we explode again. Is he as good as people are thinking he is, or is he just a ticking time bomb again? And there's a lot of visual cues and audio cues of like that. Like when he's in the taxi, when he talks to people through the taxi, it's like a close up like this of his face. It's the close up of the person in the in the pat in the back, right? And then it's his eyes shifting up and then looking at the rearview mirror. And that's how they meet. That's how they meet in, in terms of the movie. Like, it's mm. this shot, the review mirror shot, that back shot. And it's like that. They're never in the same camera angle together. And it, it, and it shows how isolated he is and, like, how alone he is and stuff like that. I feel like I don't see as many movies where that happens. I don't know. Maybe I've just been watching too many rom-coms with my mom and too many Korean dramas. Even in Korean dramas, <laughs> though, like, they still have, like, a lot of cues for, like, when people are like in a certain like physical state because um the one that i'm watching right now has a lot of uh they drink a lot and so like when you can tell like when a character is like getting really really like they've been drinking more and more like the pace of like how someone like moves uh starts to get like blurrier so it's like you can see like the motion of like someone like rocking their head or like how like they're uh, talking and so it's like not in sync with like what they're saying and so everyone's just kind of like moving faster and like kind of slower at the same time it looks really interesting but so it's like you just see like the mental clarity of like the characters it's very interesting that's a that's a cool way to like show through the camera rather than just through the actors about like what they're going through i guess of the intoxication or whatever mm -hmm. even like messing with the focus or something is very like because, like, as a viewer, you're just seeing what's presented to you, but you don't understand that, like, they just went like that with the focus, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? <laughs> like, you, it's something, like, small and little, but it comes together really well. You know what I mean? And I like little moments like that in films and stuff. Maybe that's why I don't like big things like, like, La La Land out or, like, big and extravagant and, like... Yeah, look, you like look, the more, like, simple, like, this, you know? storytelling things that are more, like... The more everyday people, maybe? I don't know if it's just that. I think it's just kind of like, I don't want to be like told what to think. You know what I mean? Or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm rebelling a bit. Like, oh, everybody thought this movie was good. Like, Emma Stone was upset when she didn't win the Oscar. I'm going <laughs> to, you know? <laughs> like, she was, you know what I mean? And like, maybe that's why I'm thinking about it. But even like, it, it, at the end of The Graduate, it's like the one and o one of the only rom-coms where like, after they get away and after they break up the marriage and everything, and they're going to run away together. There's this little moment of they let the camera linger a little bit. And then they kind of like, yeah, yeah, we're happy. It, are we happy? Like, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's this bus? Like, what, who are we? Like, how are we going to survive in this relationship? Like, and then it's that moment of, like, just thinking about it. And it's like 20 seconds, maybe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's reports that, like, they accidentally let the camera roll. And there's other reports of them saying, no, we meant to do that from the start and blah, blah, blah. But it, whatever, whatever way it is, I feel like it contextualizes the whole movie even better. Just the little moment like that makes it so that I can write an essay about how it represents the American new wave, about how like the new generation doesn't know what they're doing in the 1960s and how they don't know where they're going and they don't know like how they're going to be able to do civil rights and break through like the um, atomic war and everything that like the last generation has gone through like it's the idea of like Dustin Hoffman's character Dustin Hoffman's character represents the generation itself like 
You know what I mean? Like I could make an argument about that because of something like that. Because we could look through con- we could look through text and stuff in history and be like, they kind of didn't know what they were doing back in the sixties and seventies. Not to be mean, we don't know what we're doing now. We never know what we're doing. Kind of, I mm-hmm. think. Like you know, it contextualizes the whole entire movie more. It even makes it. I think it makes it a better romantic movie overall. Like I like when there's like little moments like that. <laughs> like everything you like just mentioned about The Graduate, like we talked about in my film class like freshman year, I remember that it was like, because they were talking about like all the, um, what is it, film writers from like the 60s and 70s, there are still people who were kind of like maybe getting into film school, but there were the people who at least had, they weren't starting from scratch, like the people back in like the 40s, who like just had literally like they were, like, making stuff up out of nowhere, and so it's, like, they had, like, stuff to, like, pull from now, and they had more, like, they had, like, not only, like, old cinema, they had, like, TV and, like, radio, and they had, like, other stuff in other countries to pull from, and it was just, they were more, like, influenced by other things, which is, Mm -hmm. I don't know, interesting when I think about it. Storytelling and, like, art creating in general is just stacked on top of each other on top of each other on top of each other on top and it's i I think we're at a point where like we as a society are too self-aware of that like we know that like oh we're pulling from this thing which is pulling from this thing which is pulling from that thing which i guess was this thing was the first time we ever seen it we don't know exactly because that's too far back in time and we don't have you know historical accuracy we just know like who who wrote down what because it's kind of like we all know that we're all just retelling stories in like new ways but like this story has already been told before by someone back in like greece back in the day it was like some classic poem probably that shakespeare wrote something about that's referenced and like all these other things and so it's like all these tropes i uh in my playwriting class we talked about how there's basically only like seven different types of stories that can be told and like that that's basically everything everything can fall into like one of these categories and mm-hmm. they all kind of follow the same same thing. So it's like this person loses or like society wins or like the monster wins, the monster loses, that's so defeated. Or it's um, it's like that whole like man versus society, like man versus self and like all the different things. It's, it's weird because sometimes we see those references and we see the intertextuality of it and we're like, Oh, I get that reference. Oh, the new Star Wars has the Millennium Falcon in it. I'm going to clap at that and be excited in the theater. But then sometimes we see it through, like, the guise of, like, um, Ready Player One. And we're like, why are you rehashing this? Why is Street Fighter right next to Overwatch or whatever? For no reason other than, oh, I know those things and I kind of like it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's weird. Like, we sometimes accept it and we sometimes don't. And even something as simple of, like, I accepted, at the same time, not accepted stuff from La La Land. Mm-hmm. And that's just like from a purely like technical narrative like standpoint. It's not like like other like like this idea of it trying to play homage and stuff like that. Yeah, because sometimes think. in context it makes sense. Like it's it's part of that universe, and so like we're buying into it. And so like that's why in like Star Wars you believe that because it's like oh yeah, like this is it's the same place or um, how in kind of in La La Land like sometimes you're like oh these things are like small things but then sometimes it takes you out of it because it's like oh you don't have to actually be wearing like these very bright colors to be in this movie like you have actual coloring you can wear any other clothes and it's like 
but they're, they, it's not like they had to do it because the film can only record like these three colors really good. So it's, mm. it's like you went a little extra with that. And sometimes yeah. you feel it and sometimes you don't. It, okay, I'm going to talk about it like a uber specific moment in La La Land. Mm-hmm. But like it bugged the hell out of me and it still bugs the hell out of me. It's really weird that it bugs the hell out of me, I'm going to admit. Okay, so there's a part when they're in the observatory. Mm-hmm. You remember that? And before they do the dance sequence and everything, like it's like ramping up the music and they're walking through the thing and they see the Tesla coil or whatever it is exactly. And it's going around and it's doing stuff and they're like creeping around it. And then Mia's like acting like a regular actress. Like she's not like overreacting or anything. And there's times in movies where they dive, dive into pantomime because that's like back like historical accuracy of like and historical representation of like classic musicals. So in this moment, I guess the director decided, or whoever decided, to tell Sebastian, Ryan Gosling, you know, whatever, to look at the thing, like make a big fake expression and like jump out of his seat and go, ah, you know, all these things. And I, he pantomimes his reaction to it. And I feel like in context of the movie, like, why the fuck is Sebastian doing that? <laughs> and how come <laughs> Mia isn't acting like that? And how come she doesn't acknowledge it? And how come and, uh, that, like, you know, everything just in my head real quick. And it's like a five second scene. And I'm like, why am I mad right now? <laughs> Sitting in the class, like, <laughs> and then it goes into the musical sequence, and I'm like, this is a weird musical sequence. They're like floating, and then they're yeah. like in space, and then they're not, and then they're kissing, and then I guess they're in love. Okay. It's like sometimes I think it's just, like, that's like a visual yeah. representation of like their like mental state, and they're like floating away, and it works with the music. Um, so it's like that's. Yeah, well, that that was kind of <laughs> a weird part of the movie. There's a lot of montages in that movie, which mm-hmm. I know I fall victim to yeah. in like my own writing. Sometimes I'm just like, how do we do this part? Montage, <laughs> <laughs> and like that's how like you can yeah. tell time really easily and tell like it, it's kind of a cop out sometimes because you don't have to actually show the process of like them falling in love. It's just like in this moment we know that they are in love. We're just throwing that. It works in the movie, you know what I mean? It works with the narrative, it works with everything about that. It doesn't really work with me. Like, me, as an individual, I'm like, nah, but nah, though, come on. <laughs> but even, like, how you said, like, the montage thing, like, and how you said, like, the idea of, like, previous writing, you've adhered to that stuff. Since I've started working on uh, that new script, the science fiction script, like, I'm having a hard time, like, realizing that, like, I want it to be a feature length, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And so I'm thinking, like, do I add stuff here? Do I add stuff there? Do I take away things here? You know what I mean? And I'm trying not to make it, like, montage or, like, at the very least, like, student filmy or whatever, where it's, like, very concise. Because if I want it to be 200 pages, I want to be, I'll make it 200 pages. You know what I mean? If it's just one, I believe uh, 170 is the standard or something like that, like, one something, 100 and something. If I want it to be barely standard, then it's barely standard. If I don't want it to be limited at all by that, you know, I'm just going to keep writing. Then I want to do that. But, like, I'm thinking, like, is does that belong there? Does that not belong there? You know? Yeah. Like, I, I totally understand that. Like, sometimes you have to just write the scenes and be like, okay, these are all the scenes that I have. And then what's actually necessary for the story, which is, like, hard mm. sometimes because it's, like, I want to keep this but I should probably cut it for time, or I should probably cut it because it doesn't add much to the story, even though I like the way that this shows, like, this character, like, this event happening. And it's just messing with that. Because, like, um, 
in my playwriting class, we were supposed to write, like, it could have been, like, a one-act or a two-act, but it had to be at least, like, 40 pages. Some people went, like, way over that, and I was, like, just around, like, I was at, like, 38. And so it's, like, a shorter play than, like, most plays. Most plays are, like, generally, like, 70 to, like, 100 pages. Um, and that's a normal, like, two-act, and so mine is, like, it's a two-act, but it's in 38 pages. And so it, it it's not normally how you would set up a play. So like even with films, like you gotta just like make your own framework and be like, this is the story I want to tell. This is how I want to tell it. But you can't, you can't keep all the scenes, which sucks. I hate mm-hmm. that. Like knowing that you have to cut something that you really liked writing because yeah. it doesn't work in the well, final project. Well, like right now I'm like a couple pages into the script, but like into the overall project. Like, I've created the outline, and I've shared some of that with you, right? Mm. And that was, like, an 11-page thing of just me viewing out ideas onto the page, right? Like, there was, like, maybe two paragraph breaks in that 11 pages or whatever it is. And then I did the hero's journey that I want the main character to go through. So now I'm looking at the those two things and looking at the rookie in progress of the script and thinking, like, okay, how do I... How do I get him into this comfortable place so that, according to the hero's journey, I could take him out of the comfortable place and have him show his want and go through his want and all that stuff? Like, do you do that regularly or do you not do that regularly? Like, do you outline? Um, I, I usually, like, outline and do that, but then I also, um, I don't usually write in order a lot. I, I usually just, mm-hmm. like, bullet point things until I'm like oh, like, I've been bullet-pointing a lot of this, I could write a scene now. Like, I can see all of it happening, so then I, like, write that scene. And then I go back and I look at, like, the other bullet points that I have, and I was like, I kind of have a little chunk of this one, maybe let's see where that goes. And sometimes I write too much dialogue, and then I'm like, okay, we need to cut back. And sometimes I'm like, this scene didn't actually say anything. I need to rewrite this whole thing. So it's just, like, going back and forth and, like taking those little bullet-pointed chunks and, like, moving them around. I don't know, I, I just thought, like, I should write it, like, in in order, I guess, because of, like, then I could then I could build the main character as what he is before I just make him who he is already, like, in the, you know, like, in the later parts of the script, which I think I'll probably have an easier time writing because in the process of doing the hero's journey thing, I created two characters that didn't exist before in the outline. So I got to the point where they met, and I'm like, well, who are these characters? What are they even their names? Like, I don't know. Let's put two friends meet, you know? Meet up for a book club type thing. So I'm, like, confused about that. But, like, even, like, I was, even, like, I said before, like, my friend was, like, mind-blown about, like, all the callbacks and stuff in Back to the Future. That made me want to, like, have something like that. But I feel like sometimes that hurts you because then you're thinking in the back of your head, let me do this thing that's, like, really precise and really, like, that, you know what I mean? Like, it's very, Back to the Future is very Back to the Future, and Taxi Driver is very Taxi Driver, and Graduate's very The Graduate. But you're not making The Graduate or The Taxi Driver or Back to the Future or anything else. You're making your own thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, so my brain's operating like that, and I'm like, I'm not even writing at this point, I'm just analyzing my analyzing of a... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're like, I want to do the thing that this thing did, like, right here. And it's like, you got to be like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And, like, whatever that is for this project is, like, the thing that I need to figure out. 
and uh, what you're saying about like the other characters that you added in though um, I was thinking about uh, also in my playwriting class uh, when we were trying to figure out how to write like not main characters or characters that you feel like you don't have enough for yet try writing like some scenes from their perspective like um, try writing it as if like they think that they're like the main character like they think that this is their story (laughs) what I'm sorry I'm saying that I said that's so smart. I did not. Yeah, because it like helps sense. you give like depth to like the other ones. Like imagine that it's their story and like they're the ones who are like, this is what's happening to me, and I'm not just like this side person here. And it helps so much, honestly. Now I need to write this down. <laughs> but because so far they've walked into the his house, his apartment, or whatever, and like I wanted to be that they mentioned that he that they're late or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, um, the main character doesn't know because he forgot or whatever. But I was like, well, how are they going to mention it? Are they going to mention it rudely? Are they going to mention it apologetically? Are they going to mention it, you know, whichever way? But now I could, like, have a conversation between the two, walking to the, you know? Mm-hmm. Not have it in the overall script, but, yeah. like, have it, like, as a thing. But yeah, that helps so much, too, like, figuring out what would happen outside of like the things that you're having on screen or like on a stage being like what happened like right before this like what were these people doing earlier in the day what happened like Mm -hmm. a week ago when they were just hanging out like how do these people normally interact and then how did they interact here like helps a lot the weird thing about being a fan and trying to be a creator like i guess us because i don't know if you would classify like students of this of the craft that we're in as creators yet or not, but um, part of being part of being a fan is that you want to do the things mm-hmm. that the things you you're a fan of are doing. You know what I mean? I think and you want to is... like do that well, but you don't know how to yet. Yeah, yeah. I-, I think as long as you're making things, like you're definitely a creator. As long as like you're actively like practicing, like whatever you're working towards, you're you're making stuff. You're being influenced by these other things and you're, like, morphing your style into, like, whatever it's going to be. But, like, that's going to keep changing. We're all just, like, silly putty. And you're just, like, squishing it, putting it over there for a while, looking at it, being like, I don't like these things I used to make. And then you're, like, remolding it, taking, like, some pieces you liked and keeping those, putting it back over there, looking back at it and being like, mm, got to change that again. Like, morphing it, putting it over there. Yeah, that's good, because I don't know if you thought that way or not. Because I know some people think, like, you need to do it professionally to be considered such or whatever. But I think, like, I think you could be a creator. Because especially uh, in, like, my poetry workshops, because a lot of people are not, like, professional poets. Like, you don't don't make money being a professional poet. Like, that's not a thing that happens. Because it's like you're either, like, a professor who, like, makes money from that and like that's like directly what you're working on like that's the only way you get paid as a poet like if like that's like your job um otherwise you're doing like a regular thing some people have been like accountants some people are teachers some people are like doctors some people do like it's literally like a side thing and like that's like your creative thing so especially in like that like that's like no one's main job so it's like all of those people would you consider like um I'm trying to think. I think William Carlos Williams, I'm trying to remember what his job was, but I know that he was, like, a normal dude. But it's like, would you consider him not, like, a professional writer if, like, 
he wasn't out there just writing books and doing poetry all the time. You can't set those kind of like standards and being like, oh, because I'm not Guillermo del Toro, I am not a filmmaker. That's actually, that's actually kind of plays into something I wanted to talk to, talk about, which is the idea of like, like, like expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. I think everybody needs to lead some form of expression. Whether that form of expression is just poems that you keep to yourself, or if it's movies you make with your friends, if it's your job to make a movie, or if it's just like something as simple as playing like D and D and using your imagination on the weekends mm -hmm. with a group of friends, I feel like all of that kind of ties together into like what you want to express yourself about, either on a subconscious level, conscious level, whichever. And I feel like it's mentally healthy to get that out because mm -hmm. then if you're not, then you're just like in a rat race. Yeah. You're just like constantly grinding and not like letting it breathe your brain, you know? You're just letting your mind race and like fight with itself inside. Yeah. yeah. It's really nice to get things out there and be like, oh, that felt good. Like, those were thoughts that were bothering me. Now they're over here. That's better. <laughs> like, every time I finish a project, like, it's just like the best friend of the world of like, dude, I fucking made something. It's probably not something that's going to win an award, or it's probably not something that's going to, like, blow anyone's mind. But I fucking made something. And then, like, you should... And then I tell my friends and family, whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, like, like I just finished a student film project, Beyond Message, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. And so for the past few weeks, like, every time I meet someone I haven't met, like, in a while, whatever... They're like, hey, I, I watched that, you know, I saw the link you posted or whatever. You did a good job. You did this. That was really nice. And that was really interesting, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, like I guess it is kind of mind-blowing because, like, I guess you, you tell people that you're creating things and you're like, yeah, sure. Like, I want to, like, every time I, somebody asks me about what I'm going to college for, it's like, oh, I'm going to City College. What for? Oh, I want to transfer to somehow get into a in, uh, university somewhere in L.A. to pursue filmmaking it's like oh that's cool that's neat that's really interesting uh when are you gonna get a job <laughs> <laughs> you know like and it's and even like uh the people who support me i feel are even kind of like that too like mm -hmm. the idea of like even even me myself like every i think everybody involved in the situation is kind of like in the back of their head like oh shit uh you might not make it you should probably think about you know something else yeah, I, I kept trying to remember what i was listening to if it was a podcast the other day or if i was watching a YouTube video but someone was talking about how when you are a creative person like you especially need like if you want that to be your career you also have to plan for if that fails completely and like what you're gonna like logically do to like survive <laughs> <laughs> and like what you don't hate doing and if you're willing to if you are gonna just like work on like your creative things are there other like creative things that you like that might make you like more money so it's like i'm like a writer but i might end up doing like more content writing for like a brand and like more of like marketing for something or i might end up doing more like video editing for something because that's like mm -hmm. something that people need because and sometimes people are like oh i made this thing you're gonna like help me work on this instead of being like I wrote this thing can you help me make it like it's it's harder to do that from like the bottom you gotta like help people on their own projects sometimes or do businessy things and live the cubicle life 
Yeah. Which is not as fun, but sometimes necessary. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. I don't know, like, like I'm, I'm chasing this plan, and it's not a well-thought-out plan, I'll admit, but it's my plan, and I want to do it. But, like, even the plan has plans. Like, I'd, I'd be okay with being an editor for something. I'd be okay with interning places and just becoming a PA or whatever. But, like, I kind of want to climb that ladder, you know? To kind of change up the conversation, have you seen um, Love on Netflix? Okay, so in it, um, I just realized I took off my glasses. Uh, in it, uh, two people meet or whatever, and they're kind of like um, messed up and they fall in love. Like that's the romantic comedy part of it, whatever. But the guy is a guy who works as a teacher, as an on-set teacher for this um, program called Wichita, which is a... Um, called like Amish times like back like Salem witch trials time period of like that but like of, of following witches in the past and stuff but then he what he wanted to do and what he went to LA to do because he's from like the south somewhere I forgot where exactly but they explore that later in the show um what he wanted to do is like write for films and direct films and stuff like that so like his arc is kind of like him uh trying to climb that ladder and then eventually he does and then when he does it turns out that He's an asshole. He like he like writes a spec for a script and like hands it to like he like forces it kind of into the hands of like one of the writers on the show, and then the, the and then the guy just reads it because he's like oh whatever it's probably funny it's probably bad and then it turns out being he turns out really liking it, and so they have to like buy the idea, they have to buy the spec from him, and that's how he gets in the writing's writers room, and he doesn't realize that he's in the writers room just for legal purposes like he's not. He's not there to like add it or contribute anything. They're just gonna take like the idea of this character doing this thing that he made in his head and to make it into another like script altogether. Mm-hmm. So they're all bouncing off ideas, the regular people in the writing room, they're all talking this and that, and then he like flips out about what they're writing and he tries to take the laptop from them and he like pulls the laptop out of the wall and like breaks the laptop and breaks the chair and all these things or whatever. But like it's like his his brain was so like I guess like um, like anal about it being his idea and stuff like that that he like fucked it up really badly, and then later on in the show you find out like he that's not the first time that happened for him and he messed up in a way bigger way before like he messed up as a PA for a certain producer or whatever, and so that's why he's not able to get any jobs, basically like I've related to that character in terms of like. Oh shit, what if like I get into a writer's room really anxiety heavy for some reason and I mess up that way? Because I've been in situations where like not like with the not with the creative process, mm-hmm. but like with other things where I'm like like I'm at the end of my rope mentally and I'm like and I kinda explode like that. I've always kept the calm head with, with the creative process because it's always been like people like me who are like chill and relaxed and students and whatever. But if it's like T V network execs like telling me to cut something from a show I don't know how to handle it because even like you know who uh, Dan Harmon is. Well, then you probably didn't watch his show, which I'm going to talk about, now, which is Community, which I'm not going to explain. Yeah, I- I've heard about Community though. <laughs> there was a lot of drama behind that show because he wasn't a good showrunner, I mm-hmm. guess. And so around the, I think it's the third season, he gets cut from the show, and then he comes back the fourth season, and then it kind of tanks. So they come back for a fifth season, I think, on the internet, on Yahoo, and like all these things. And, like, I love that show because it's such, like, a weird niche thing, I guess, in the way it's written, and it's written from a person who's, like, grown up on TV. I feel like 
there's been at least two generations now that have grown up on TV. And so I connected to it on a kind of a level. But then also, like, there's a lot of, like, flaws with it. Like, the characters don't act the same. And there's a lot of, like, character quirks that don't get resolved and stuff like this. And behind the scenes-wise, it's because of him and his ex- his anxiety of, like, helping the fan base and helping the... And um, producing what they want. So in the last episode, there's a end credit, end credit sequence. Mm-hmm. And the whole show is pretty meta. So the end credit sequence... Well, that whole last episode is them pitching ideas to each other around the ball table about what the next season would be. And they're like, oh, we'll get a robot sidekick. We'll, we'll reboot the franchise. We'll do this or whatever. And then it ends with um, community board game. And it's like them doing references at first of like, oh, I landed on this space, which is a reference to this episode or whatever. And then it's like, and then it turns into like one of those ads of like a prescription thing of like, mm-hmm. warning, side effects may include, you know, it starts rattling off things. And it's like, they include storylines and plot things that don't get resolved. And directors and writers writing to not fulfill what you want as an audience member and character representation that isn't well written and, and um, character arcs that aren't fulfilling to you. And it may also include anxiety for the screenwriter, for, I mean, for the um, showrunner. And it might include the idea that, oh, you're not good enough for um, people. Maybe that's why your therapist tells you that. And like, he starts like breaking down his own psyche mm-hmm. in that moment. Like in my head, I'm thinking like, when I, whatever I think about it and whatever I watched it, I'm like thinking like, oh, that's a creator. Like that's like a person who's like created content and who's like, somehow not happy with it or maybe he is happy with it but not fully happy or maybe he doesn't know what happy is or maybe you know what i mean mm-hmm. i know this is all heavy things and i've been talking for like <laughs> a long period and, but it's all like it's all like things that i think like people throw onto the idea of a creator mm-hmm. i think of like maybe the same person who thinks like in order to be a creator you need professional be professional is the same person who thinks Oh, all creators or like troubled artists and stuff like that. People who cut off their areas like Van Gogh or trap themselves in rooms and starve themselves to finish a painting or finish a book or whichever. I feel like only a certain percentage are like that. You can't look at a few examples of it and think that way. Because I know I think that way. And I don't know if like the people watching think that way, if you think that way or not. Because you mentioned showrunners. I'm thinking about how like Smash was like a NBC TV show that was like about musicals. And, like, first season, like, is really good. The storyline follows. The music's good. And, like, second season, the showrunner changes. Storylines fall apart. There's lots of things that just, like, happen that are, like, weird and, like, out of character. Like, some people that seemed like the main character first season are really quiet in a lot of episodes. And, like, it goes to other people. And so, like, that fell apart. And then um, I was thinking... What was the other movie? Fantastic Four, uh, the new one, because we watched that in my film class. Um, I had to watch it like three times because I had to write an essay about it. It's because it was supposed to be like why people called it like the worst movie of like whatever year it came Uh out. And um, so we had to watch it for that and like analyze like why is it bad? What was the reason that it like failed? And it's just because like the director wanted one thing and then like the studio wanted one thing. They switched directors several times. Like all these things happened that like the outside stuff that went wrong and like all these retakes that make all these plot holes and just like how outside forces can affect the story 
the movie Cleopatra, I think, mm-hmm. um, is like four hours long or something like that. And it ended up being like one of the most expensive movies ever because of how many reshoots they had. Because I think the first set like caught on fire, so they had to remake the entire thing and then like refilm stuff. And I don't know. I feel like that just outside stuff or like the people, the people not putting the story first or people not agreeing on a story first. Like you got to have all the people on the team being like, we agree that like these parts are like vital to the story and like vital to the people who will be watching it. And then it's not just for like, this is going to make big bucks. So we should do this thing just because it's going to like get people in the seats and we don't care if it's actually that good or not, but it's gonna make ticket sales. I feel like that's like a very uh, Avatar thing, because it was like, it's 3D, it's this like cool yeah. story, and like all these things, and like everyone went to go and see it, and like it was a good movie for a little while, but does like anyone remember anything really about Avatar? Exactly. Like, <laughs> so it's like, what does that actually contribute as like a project? <laughs> Especially in terms of like movies now, with like franchises being a thing, and like, all the executives and producers are, like, chasing the idea of, like, the Marvel money. Mm-hmm. Everyone feels like they have to do yeah. a series of something. The idea of, like, Star Wars is back, and now it's back forever until yeah. you die. <laughs> and oh. it's going to keep going forever. <laughs> because now it's part of that Disney train. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Disney's like, we can market it to hell. <laughs> yeah, Again, same true. thing with Marvel. It's also Disney now. What is it? Speaking of like hero related things, the TV show Heroes season one is like such a good cohesive thing. And it was supposed to be like a comic. Like this was the run of it. It was like just like this one season is how it was supposed to be. But then NBC like wanted it to be like a full series, which was against like the original idea of it. And so season two still makes it. And like it just gets worse after that because they kept renewing it when it was supposed to be just like this. This was supposed to be like the whole thing. Um, and so like you kind of feel that and it just it it was such a good one season and I really like uh, I think Korean dramas because of that reason is because a lot of them are just like 12 to 16 episodes and that's the whole thing like you've told this entire like little series there's even like a shorter Korean drama that's like four episodes called Mimi and it's really good it tells like the story of this girl who like died and this guy who's like a comic artist like unraveling like what happened because he has like ptsd about like her whole death so he's like forgotten about her and she's like a ghost like trying to like remind him like what happened because he's like blocked it out this whole time and like i think he even like paints her and he doesn't realize that it's her or he thinks that it's just like out of his imagination and like it's, it's a wild experience, but it's like four episodes that are just really good. It's like a longer movie or something. And I feel like that's how a lot of Korean dramas feel. Sometimes it feels like they're doing like what anime does sometimes, where it's like these are just filler episodes. But uh, some of the really good ones are like a solid like 12. And like this is just like a longer movie. It's really great how like they can mess with the medium like that. And then I was already thinking of community because of the whole idea of like renewing seasons and stuff. I felt like the showrunner getting kicked off and the showrunner coming back and they coming back for a season and not performing well and coming back for another season for the internet and blah, blah, blah. Really like damages the psyche of the whole show, I guess. Right now I'm watching uh, Freaks and Geeks. Like it's just, it's just like a really good show. And every time I watch it, I'm like, 
okay, there's only one season, there's only 19 episodes, I keep watching it because I don't want to just binge it. I'm like halfway through and I'm like, have that feeling of regret of like, I don't want it to end. As I've grown older, I've realized that like TV shows or whatever, like have a, have a, um, effect on me in terms of like, or effect of anybody really. If you're like actually attached to them, then you feel like you don't want them to go and you don't want them to leave, mm-hmm. even though they are just characters and stuff like that. The really interesting thing about community is that they play with the idea of that because characters leave and characters replace them, their spots at least. So like you're saying goodbye to the character, like, you know, and they're saying goodbye to the character too. I don't know if that's a sign of something being good or if it's just a sign of you somehow being attached to it or it being in the good, being good in the sense that it's that it's uh, emotionally there, I guess. Mm-hmm. I feel like everything needs to invest you in the characters enough. Like some TV shows, uh, I know my mom has a hard time sometimes because uh, she lost track of like Vampire Diaries at like one of the seasons because uh, some of the characters that she cared about left and then like this other storyline goes on and she's like, well, I was only really watching for this person. So it's like TV shows have to at least have something to like some consistency. So like the thing is either the characters are holding it together or like the story's holding it together. Like I was saying about Supernatural earlier, like we can care about like whatever's going to happen to these people as long as it's like Sam and Dean. Some things, Vampire Diaries, for my mom, she was like, I I can't just care about these vampires if this vampire isn't here. (laughs) (laughs) Because like after like watching Community, I've watched like behind the scenes stuff and he was talking about the idea of like like appeasing the fan base and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Donald Glover, who worked on it as an actor, as uh, Troy, he left like fourth season, which is the season uh, Dan Harmon came back. He, he left like half, halfway through the season. Like a lot of people in the community, I guess, like say that's the point where like starts to deter off, you know? Like that's where it's like, it wasn't the same because the group dynamic within the show wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. Probably the group dynamic on the set wasn't the same and like all these other factors you know so like it's very like it's very weird i guess not not weird but like very like self um reflective i guess yeah because sometimes you just need like that amount of that energy to be there um even i'm thinking about youtube now uh because some people uh when like source fed was still a thing and some people felt that, uh, what is it, like, certain hosts didn't have, like, the same energy, or they were like, I can't watch when it's, like, these people together because I don't like the way that they, like, interact. Or, like, I really like it when these people are hanging out together because their interactions feel a certain way. And so some people could never buy into, like, the new hosts being there because it wasn't, like, the original, like, four people. And then some people were, like, just, like, this combination works or... um yeah, so it's like anywhere really, like in a business, I think. I, I feel like that's also where like other industries fall apart, but that's a whole other thing. I'm thinking about like Apple and like Steve Jobs and like him leaving and coming back and where like Apple failed and they're like, we need you back. And then Apple now, which is also a mess. Uh- <laughs> well, you had me think of, I don't know when you were mentioning YouTubes, you made me think of the creatures, mm-hmm. the YouTube group that, um, James and Alex are from, um, who are from Cowchop or whatever. They had a lot of members coming and going and leaving and stuff. And they even have a point where, like, people say, like, when, uh, usually say, like, when Sly left, which is a character, I'm a character, <laughs> a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, whatever, a uh, member, 
like when he left and like later on when Seamus left, like who I know you don't know who they are, but I'm just saying like when they left that year. I, I know who they are. I just didn't, didn't okay, know okay. they were all from the creatures, which is like such a weird thing to like, yeah. <laughs> like when they left around 2014 is when it started to theater off or whatever. And like in 2015, that's when like James and Alex wanted to do more of their own thing because of like Jordan being a weird boss and all these things. And like that group dynamic even shows and content that they're producing, like in the stupid little let's plays they're doing or in the live streams or in the vlogs or in the creature shorts or whatever they're doing. Like, even if it's not like a TV set thing, like you realize that the revolving door isn't like of cast, the revolving door cast isn't like the same when you take out pieces from it. Mm -hmm. I feel like the group dynamic is like a thing that like can affect you. Like people, I don't watch um, Westworld. I think it's yeah, right on HBO. I don't watch it, but I watch a podcast, and on the podcast they're talking about it. And I forgot his name, but Christopher Nolan's brother was like a writer, I think, on it, and like a showrunner for the first season. And there was like a lot of little moments here and there that like were very sci-fi in terms of like questioning things mm -hmm. and like raising questions and like all this stuff. But then with the second season, he took a step back because I think he's producing a movie or something right now. I could be wrong about that. But like he's on his own projects. And that's like what's damaging the show they were saying. Like the idea of like the same group isn't there, the same people isn't there. There's even stuff like The Simpsons. Like like people say isn't good up to this point or it's not good up to that point. Like up to season 12, up to season 9, up to season whatever. But it's all like, it's all like whichever group dynamic you liked, whichever like writing room you liked or whatever. Um, what is it? Greg Berlanti is the one who does like all the CW hero shows. So he does like, I think, Legends of Tomorrow, Supergirl, Flash, and Arrow. I think he's the director for all of those shows. And so like, all of them have like a, a feel to them, which is like, it's funny. And like, sometimes it's just like, cute, and it has a lot of heart in it. But then there's also like these really like intense, like, emotional, like actiony things that like happen in it. So it's like, it feels very comic-y, is like how those TV shows feel. They feel like how in comic books, like sometimes they're kind of like ridiculous and sometimes they're like a little over the top or it's like, just like, there's really a, a what is it? Like a shark villain. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the sh name of the shark is. And there's like Gorilla Grodd and like all of these like mm -hmm. dumb things that are like in this universe. And so like they have all of those things, but then they also have like really intense moments where it's like a timeline gets rewritten and like something happens and there's like mm -hmm. all these alternate things that go on and like someone's like child is like erased from history and like they come back as like another kid and um i'm trying to remember because i think it's an arrow because they had a daughter uh diggle has a daughter named sarah and so like when barry resets everything in the flash um it it ends up being like a boy that they have and so like this little girl is like erased but like barry's like the only one that like remembers that like he had a daughter and so he's like kind of freaked out <laughs> and so like there's all those like little things that are just like because that director's like making sure that like all these shows have like that feeling to them like yeah. it feels very i think normal when like those shows do like a crossover that they like all have the same feel because it's a nice cross-pollination thing yeah it's easier to do that, I guess, now. Yeah, because it brings... Like, 
nerdier things into the mainstream like more often which is what you want if you're like a really like niche thing um you want to put it into the mainstream Mm -hmm. but then like how youtube is now you worry about like it used to be a niche thing and we've pushed it into the mainstream and what has it become (laughs) but like the weirdest part about that stuff is that like when i would follow the creatures they would talk about back in like 2013 2012 they would talk YouTube's fucking up again. We can't upload. We can't this. We can't that. Nobody's seeing subscription. Nobody's seeing our things in subscription boxes, and mm-hmm. nobody. You know what I mean? So even back then, it was like things are being messed up. But now that like there's not like six YouTubers who have a million views, but like a bigger amount of that. I mean, a million subscribers, and there's even bigger people, and there's even like bigger community around this overall community of YouTube. Like then it's more like people are getting mad about these little changes that like. I'm not really talking about the changes as much as I'm talking about, like, where, like, the money goes with, like, YouTube. Like, how, like, there's a point on YouTube where everyone was just doing it for fun, because there was, like, no way to, like, make money on YouTube. And then YouTube gave, um, they had, like, a, I'm trying to remember the name of, like, the creative program, but they gave some creators, like, money to, like, do things. That's what, like, the Vlogbrothers did with, like, Crash Course. They had, like, startup money to, like, do that as, like, a project. And then they had to do, like, Subbable and Patreon, like, afterwards. So it's, like, they gave them money to, like, do those projects. And at first, that's what people thought was going to happen with, like, YouTube Red. They were going to, like, give these people money for, like, these projects, which did happen. But it was only, like, these exclusively already people who were, like, well-off YouTubers who could kind of probably do this on their own. It's, like, um, what is it? Joey Graceffa, whatever his night thing is, where, like, all the people dress up and, like, costumes and I think are stuck in a house or something. I've only seen the YouTube previews for that. But that and then uh, I know like the slow-mo guys have like their like exclusive thing which I assume is just more (laughs) slow-mo. And then Rooster Teeth had Laser Team which is again it's like people giving like people who already have like a decent amount of money money instead of being like these are creators who we believe in who can do something cool if they only had the money to do this project. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I feel like that's... So what is that? Like 2012 is when Crash Course happened? So maybe 2011, 2012 is when I think a huge rift happened in YouTube, where it became more businessy and more, how can we get more views and traction to the site instead of being like, we're going to help creators make cool things. And what's I was trying to talk about, like the idea of like back then they were doing these changes mm. that were not smart or whatever for like the you part of YouTube. Yeah. The you is supposed to be anybody really that could has access access to the internet and whatever else they can create. But like even like like how would you even like decide like who's beneficial to like get that traction, I guess. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's very complicated and it's very like I feel like you would need an algorithm, but like I feel like you would need to like not have whatever algorithm they're doing. I, I, I feel like YouTube would be better at that if they just interacted with the creators. Right now it's very much like YouTube is a business and we do this thing on our side. And every now and then we'll talk to you through a tweet when we change our terms of service. Yeah. <laughs> and like that's really it. But it's like a very disconnected thing if it was more like the creators and YouTube are, like, in this space together where, like, they can all, like, communicate and do a thing. Like, 
because like I've been thinking about like the conventions now. Um, there's like Buffer Festival, which is run by Corey Vidal, who is a creator and who interacts with the community. And so it's like he chooses people from there who like submitted like films and stuff to be shown at the festival. And so it's like a bunch of creators in like Canada meet for like one of them in Toronto. They just met for another one in LA. And so it's like all these creators get to get together and talk and see a bunch of films and like stuff by like indie creators and like but that's run by a youtuber instead of by a company and same thing with like vidcon vidcon's kind of a company because it's complexly and um even now like viacom's like a part of it but i haven't seen what's going on for this year yet but that's run mainly by like youtubers who get to hang out with other youtubers and decide like what matters to them and so i feel like that's YouTube just needs to interact with the people that it's trying to make a business out of in order to figure out how to make, I don't know, a better platform. But I don't know if they care about making a better platform or just like, we need more views, we need more clicks, more watch time. (laughs) Makes Netflix, I think Netflix is like not making money technically. Oh yeah, they're in hell of debt. They're still spending money. Like it's weird. Like, you know what I mean? Like I feel like YouTube, like we're having some people jump ship like of the regular content creators like mm-hmm. to like twitch or whichever else or like just stop doing internet stuff in general but like maybe maybe it's not that they don't care but they know that it's going to be a lot of manpower to be like okay we need to get in check how many accounts are active like you know how many accounts are like in the in the um side of like making money for themselves mm-hmm. like adsense and all. how many qualify for that and how many have this amount of fans and stuff how many get this much traction we need people to go to those people and like be representatives for them it's kind of like government like the whole state is thrown into like you get these representatives that represent you when you vote like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so they need some sort of structure like that but instead of doing a structure they're doing like the automated thing yeah which makes sense because the numbers but like it's like oh these are the the most views these are the most votes so it's like so clearly people have watched this thousand degree knife cutting through this thing this many times. That must be the thing that most people want to watch. So that one's going to be bumped up. Meanwhile, yeah. this video got like 2000 views. People must not want to watch that video. Push it back down. So it's like, it, it does feel like you said, like a kind of like these representatives, but it's like just voting with views. They want to change the subscription box to having like Things are much more that are more relative to you rather than yeah. chronological order. Makes sense because I am subscribed to a couple people that I don't watch every single thing they do. Like I don't watch all the things of Chop Every now and then I dive into that channel, but like when I scroll, when I'm scrolling down, I just scroll right past Couchop, You know what yeah. I mean? But I go to like the other content. But like it's not that it's not that hard to scroll down on yeah. your damn phone. So I don't know why. And that's what people have been saying. <laughs> They're like, I can scroll myself. Like that's if I don't want to watch something, I'm gonna scroll past it. But yeah. I like having yeah. that option there. Is there anything that you want people to like know or something? I would say um, look up Meow Message on YouTube. It should be the first one. Meow Message 2018. That's a student film project I did. And then you could look up um, Alexander Trejo or Trejo Alexander on social media things. Like I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on YouTube. I'm gonna start doing stuff on YouTube, I believe. If you would like to be a future guest on the podcast, please fill out the survey in the description below.